So how can Matthew, in quoting Hosea's words of reminder and covenant to Israel, say about Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt and then coming back? And so it was to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. This week, Dan and I move on to another topic. We talk about typology. And in this first episode, I'm going to try and split this up into three parts. In the first episode, we're going to talk about some of our, we're going to lay the table with some of our problems we have. And we're talking here specifically about prophecy, biblical prophecy, and more importantly, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. So we lay out some of our issues, and then next week we're going to talk about um, a frame that Tim Mackey has and one that's found in a book that Daniel's been reading recently. So I hope you guys find this enjoyable and encouraging, and as always, we'll see you in the next Welcome to the Belfast Podcast, uh, where we are dedicated to recapturing the Christian imagination. I'm your host, Luke Byler, here with Daniel. And in discussing pre-show, we found out that we needed to swap uh, our episode order, so we're going to attempt to do that today. Uh, If you've been tracking with us, we've been talking a lot about uh, literary structure Motifs, themes, types, they get played out through, um, throughout text in different ways. We've, uh, as of late, been having a lot of discussions about canon, about how the, the formation of the Old Testament, New Testament canon, how canons as such, be it Star Wars canons, Batman canons, um, the Western canon, like canons of culture, get established and they all get established in the same kind of way um because why would you expect it to be any different um and so within this because that falls into the larger frame we've had for months now which is a very pointed literary frame for viewing the bible for viewing its stories for viewing the canon itself um, I've made arguments on uh, previous episodes about the canon being what gives us the fuller sense of the Bible, which is something that we will talk about in a lot of detail today. Um, <clears throat> but as we were discussing today, our what we're going to be talking about, just to show our hand at the beginning, is is how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. We've referenced it before in episodes, but we haven't had an actual discussion about it pointedly. And so we thought that that would be very helpful. And then after that, we were going to do an episode on typology in the Bible and how that themes get repeated again and again, but we found in our discussion that we need to reverse those. So we're going to have a discussion about um, typology and literary structures and forms and themes that you see repeated 
throughout the Bible, how those get used in the Old and New Testament, and how, more specifically, they get repurposed in certain ways in the New Testament um, that differ from how they are in the Old, and why that causes a lot of trouble for people, um, and what we think is a good way to remedy, per se, this situation. Um, but I wanted to I want to talk for a second to, to introduce what I see as the problem or the problem that I've had with this discussion about the Old Testament, the New Testament, as we've been talking about formations of the canon, how the New Testament writers seem to take what's in the Old Testament and use it in certain ways that seem very odd and weird. Um, this specifically was an issue for me growing up as a Christian and how prophecy gets talked about. And to, to open up this discussion, I wanted to read uh, an excerpt from one of the beginnings of a chapter in Dune. This is from a chapter in, in Children of Dune, which speaks of the children of Paul Atreides, Leto and Ganema, uh, Leto II to be specific. And, um, and I, I mentioned this in a previous episode. I think I'm going to cut it, this specific quotation reading but um we speak of you know paul atreides in his time and in his place but one of the things that made him special because of his benin jesuit training because of his ingestion of spice which is a um which has a lot of psychedelic properties um gives him the ability to see into the future to prophesy to be a prophet and he sees a lot of futures and one of them is his own, and he sees paths that can be taken to, if this action occurs or that action occurs, this is the kind of path you will go down. And the question for him is, which path will he go down of the futures that he sees? Part of the question of the books that come after that are, did he choose the right path or was there one that would have been better? And so there's discussion, obviously, about futures, about decisions, about rulers about messiahs but also just about prophecy in general and how this functions and i think herbert has something poignant to say on this topic um this is again one of the excerpts from the beginning of a chapter from from children of dune he says either we abandon the long honored theory of relativity or we cease to believe that we can engage in continued accurate prediction of the future and in reading the rest of this quote i want you to think about how you were taught about how the prophets in the Bible spoke of what was to happen, and specifically when they speak of the Messiah. Or we cease to believe that we can engage in continued accurate prediction of the future. Indeed, knowing the future raises a host of questions which cannot be answered under conventional assumptions unless one first projects an observer outside of time, and second, nullifies all movement. If you accept the theory of relativity, it can be shown that time and the observer must stand still in relationship to each other or inaccuracies will intervene. This would seem to say that it is impossible to engage in accurate prediction of the future. How then do we express the continued seeking after this visionary goal by respected scientists? How then do we explain Muad'Dib? I think this idea that Herbert's getting at of 
if you're going to predict rightfully what is happening, you have to have not only an observer that stands outside of time and place to see what is going on, but whatever happens here also has to stop because even if you can see it here, things might happen here that disrupt whatever you say is going to happen. And so when I was growing up and I was taught about prophecy and biblical prophecy, much of the time had to do with eschatology, the end of time, the end of the world, the you know coming of the kingdom of God and Armageddon and all of this stuff. And it would be talked about as if, well, God, the observer outside of time, was giving the prophets these words to say about what was to happen, say, in Daniel, about, about the end of days. And I, always, I was always troubled by this, because my initial thought, as Herbert's pointing out, is, well, how would they know? This, again, it goes into some discussion about inspiration, right? Is he whispering into the ear of the prophet exactly what to say? Um, and then as I started getting a little bit more mature and reading the Bible, I would look at the prophetic books and I would say, I would think, well, they also seem to be talking a lot of things. They also seem to be saying a lot of things to the people that are with them at the moment. So are they just predicting the future? Is that their only role? Or are they saying something to their people in their time and place? Is Isaiah only predicting the future, the suffering servant? Or is he also talking about the exile of Israel? What about Daniel? What about Jeremiah? All of these things. And so... That was one issue that I had. And then I learned about how, well, a prophet could say something here that will that is true in his time and place about, say, Israel's exile, but also tells of a future that will that will also fulfill that prophecy. So there's a double fulfillment that happens. There's some ways in which I can agree with that, but other ways in which I think it's a little bit misguided, especially in terms of thinking of Isaiah's suffering servant. He's not talking about necessarily a specific, like he's talking as a future hope for Israel, which we can uh, again project and we'll get to this later. But this was my problem with like how the canon used itself in terms of prophecy, literally, and then how prophecy as I grew up was always talked about. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just have one more quotation, and then, Daniel, you can talk about your experience with this kind of thing. And then it gets even more complicated when you start to read the Gospels closely, and you see the Gospel writers act as, like, retroactive observers outside of time who tell of a fulfillment of something that wasn't even a prophecy. A good example, a classic example of this um, that we'll reference again later is Matthew 2.15. And I'll read you Matthew 2.12 through 15, and then I will read you what he is quoting. Matthew says, this is obviously the beginning of his gospel, telling of Jesus and the 
exodus that they make to Egypt. Matthew says this, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left out of Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, that quotation, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son, is from Hosea 11.1. 1. And Hosea 11.1 1 through 3, which he's quoting verse 1 here, says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, talking, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who held them. Hosea 11, 1 through 3. Hosea is not even doing prophecy. He's talking of, he's, it's God through Hosea talking about what he's done for Israel, reminding them of his care for them. I'm trying to think of the way I phrased it to you earlier. Um, it was as if the, I think it was something like, in talking about what Jesus was going to fulfill, the Old Testament authors were thinking about Jesus. They just didn't know it. Yes. Yeah, that's it. So it's like this weird idea that they were talking about Jesus, but they didn't know it, which I guess with God involved is possible, right? But there's also this then disconnect from who they are and what they're dealing with and the very real and intense problems that they have. It just seems to be not important at that point, as though this savior to come in the future is in some way, shape, or form just talking about in obscure language that there is a savior that's going to come in the future is going to fix the very real world problems that they're dealing with now. I'm dealing with some very real world problems in my current contemporary situation and talking about some saving day of the Lord yes, gives me hope, but it doesn't actually address the issue at hand. And maybe this is, again, a disagreement in the frame of the gospel, and that's something we'll get into, not today, but later. But I think God is very concerned with our problems in the here and now as well. And so in trying to wrestle through this, that idea that prophecy is just some abstract telling of the future and abstract telling of the future in which Jesus will come and do this thing that's very important, right? Very central to my faith. It, it doesn't deal with the relevant factors at hand necessarily, at least in a way that I found to be substantial. And I think now I've kind of come to a realization about what I think is the way prophecy is functioning that actually takes these two tensions and, and makes the death of Jesus mean something, not that it didn't before, because it definitely does in, it, in itself, but makes this idea 
that the Old Testament and the New Testament and the death of Jesus and all of it, like it becomes the focal point. And it becomes the focal point, not because they were just telling about some visions that were in some way, shape, or form a representation of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But that it's actually the movement of a story that's being traced. And so um, I think that does that get at what I was? Yeah. And I think my, to go on that for just a beat, my issue, even with the dual fulfillment language that gets used a lot about these prophecies, well, he was talking about what was going on then, but also about his world. It, it was always talked about as if, oh, yeah, he was, he was kind of speaking to his day. But what's really important is that he was talking about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought, well, cool, but, like, that don't help you in exile. That doesn't help you in exile. And well, let's say, okay, because of Abraham's faith, he was counted as righteous. Mm-hmm talk Romans, we can talk James, we can talk Genesis. Okay, his faith in what? The name of Jesus? Because he was never given that. So in what, where, where exactly is he placing his faith? And then does, does it require some prophetic insight? Does it like, where is all of this where, where and why is all of this functioning? And it never seemed to me to be a coherent way of viewing the way scripture was functioning. Just looking at scripture itself, right? I'm, I'm just trying to make sense of the thing that all of us are coming to, hopefully with our whole heart, loving. And, and that way of framing it just never sat right with me. Mm-hmm. Um, until, I guess I'll pivot here now, if you, unless you have something else to say. No, go ahead. So until I read, and I've been referencing it a lot, and I'll probably continue to, um, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels by Richard Hayes. On page two, he says this. He's talking about how um, Luther, Martin Luther, was reading Scripture. He says he is reading the Lucan birth figurally. That's That's an important point. Figurally employing the manger as a metaphor for the manner in which the Old Testament contains Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus was wrapped in humble swaddling clothes in the manger, so too is he wrapped in the swaddling clothes of the law, the prophets, and the writings. We might put it this way. Luther is reading the New Testament figuratively in order to proclaim the legitimacy of a figural reading of the old. Only if we frame the question this way, only if we embrace figural interpretation, can we make sense of John's gospel assertions that scripture bears witness to Jesus Christ. He is the treasure who lies metaphorically wrapped in the folds of the Old Testament. But if he is wrapped, That suggests he is not only contained, but also partially concealed within its manger. I'm skipping down to where he quotes Eric um, Arbach. 
Figural interpretation establishes a connection between two events or persons in such a way that the first signifies not only itself, but also the second, while the second involves or fulfills the first. The two poles of a figure um, of a figural temporality. Oh wait, no, sorry, I skipped a line. Uh, the two poles of a figure are separated in time, but both being real events or persons are within temporality. There we go. And that's what you were talking about with Dune, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you were talking about. This idea that they're separated across time and everything is moving. And so how can one point to the other? They are both contained in the flowing stream, which is historical life, and only the comprehension of their interdependence is a spiritual act. So now Hayes starts back up again. Read, read that last line again. Okay. They are both contained in the flowing stream, mm -hmm. which is historical life, and only the comprehension of their interdependence is a spiritual act. Okay. I'm going to make a quick reference here before you move on. Yeah. So again, to Dune and prophecy and how I mentioned this to you earlier, but how Herbert fixes this problem that he sees. Yeah. So I'll try not to go too deep into lore here, but something, something to understand about, about Leto and his sister. And it would be, uh, his aunt. So, um, Aaliyah, who is, um, who is Paul Atreides' sister in the first novel, is, is born. And Jessica, who's the Reverend Mutt, who is a Bene Gesserit, becomes a leader of the Fremen whose religion is very similar to the Bene Gesserit because the Bene Gesserit have supplanted their religion way before undo. This is a whole thing Herbert's doing with mission. Um, but they, so spices has geriatric properties and it, again, it heightens, it prolongs life. It heightens abilities. It, it gives you vision quite literally of, of the future. Um, what happens with Bene Gesserits and with the Reverend Mothers, the leaders of, of this religious sect, is that they go through something called the spice agony. And so it's, it's the ritual is called the water of life. And they drink a highly concentrated poisonous dose of spice. And Bene Gesserits have the ability to, to change molecular structure in their bodies. They can even choose the sex of their children. And so what the Reverend Mother does is she transforms the poisonous spice into something drinkable, makes it water for life, right? And water to the Fremen is life, hence the name for the ritual. What happens to the Bene Gesserit mother the, the Reverend Mother in this ritual is that she unlocks in her genetic code the memories of all her ancestors. 
Now, what happens because Jessica does this when she's pregnant is that her daughter Aaliyah becomes what's called is what's called preborn, which means as this ritual happens, Jessica is not the only one that ingests the, the spice. It's Aaliyah. And Aaliyah is born into the same condition that her mother has. She is born with the unlocked memories of all her ancestors in her genetic code. She is what's called an abomination because the fear for those that are preborn is that one of the ego memories of their ancestors will actually take over them and then they will live through that body. Because of what happens with Paul and Paul's concubine, Johnny, in the second book, Dune Messiah, she has to ingest a lot of spice to counteract a um, sterilizer that she's been slipped. So then Leto and Ganema, Paul's children, are also preborn because they've ingested so much spice while they were in utero. And so Leto, Paul's son, who becomes the god emperor, is born with all these memories of his ancestors. So even though he's a child, he's very old. And he goes into the desert near the end of Children of Dune, and he transforms himself into, it's very weird, he transforms himself into a sandworm. And sandworms live for a very, very, very long time. He becomes inhuman. Think there's, um, there's a lot of thought that uh, when George Lucas made Jabba the Hutt, he actually stole what Leto would have looked like because he's a huge giant worm, right? With little arms. Think that, right? But because of his transformation physically and his condition internally, he lives for a long, long time and ends up going down what's called the golden path. It's this whole thing of what did the path Paul choose be the right one? That's part of the question he's trying to answer. But Herbert fixes the problem of the observer and time flowing in history in making Leto Atreides live for that three to 4,000 years and be the emperor for that long. Hence why he's called the God emperor, right? He's considered to be a, div a he becomes a divine being to many people. So it's, it's exactly, he is in history flowing along with it, but because he has all these powers and all these memories, he can steer it in a direction that he wants, right? He has ultimate control. But he couldn't do that if he wasn't literally alive. He has to flow through history with it, but with all of his abilities, he can control it. This is how Herbert, in, in the narrative, fixes his own, uh, like, philosophical problem with prophecy. It's pretty ingenious. Well, it's also how God fixes divine presence among humanity, right? In incarnation. Mm -hmm. So there's some correspondence there. Very, very deep, intense correspondence. <clears throat> so yeah, that's, that's really good. And I think that tracks on exactly 
the problem that you and I are both kind of experiencing and a form of the solution. So yeah, go ahead, reread that sentence again and then go on to the the rest of the quote. So this is uh, the last uh, bit of the Eric section and then the next sentence will be Hayes. As I just described, think Leto, the God Emperor. They are both contained in the flowing stream, which is historical life and only the comprehension of their interdependence is a spiritual act. Because Leto can comprehend the interdependence of what he sees as future and then what actually happens because he lives to see it. Yes, yes. So this is where Hayes picks up. There is consequently a significant difference between prediction and prefiguration. Figural reading of the Bible need not presume that the Old Testament authors or the characters they narrate were conscious of predicting or anticipating Christ. Rather, the discernment of a figural correspondence is necessarily retrospective rather than prospective. And I'm skipping down a little bit. Only after the second event has occurred and imparted a new pattern of significance to to the first, and this is me here. New pattern. A new pattern, right? That's what he says, of significance onto the first. This is me. Can we fully understand what's happening and how that was not predicting, but prefiguring what was going to come? It pointed to what was going to come, right? That's what's going on. And I think that idea, not of prediction, as though um, you somehow, uh, so I, I'm a magician. I do magic tricks. Mm-hmm. I can um, place a card on a table and then say, name a card and someone names the card and I have them turn it over and it's the card they name, right? That's a prediction effect, right? And it's precise and it's scientific and it's you know this, that, or the other, right? It's, it's fun at parties. Is the Bible doing that kind of prediction or is it doing prefigurement? And prefigurement is when I have some dialogue before my trick and we're going back and forth, we're cutting up as I'm going about the trick. And then you realize at the end, after I've done everything, that the thing I told you subtly through the story of the trick, the thing I told you at the beginning ended up happening at the end, but not like you expected, right? That's prefigurement. It's setting you up for something. It's going to happen repeatedly, but you don't see it till it's already there because you can't. All the pieces have to fit together. And earlier I used the example of uh, the thing that's on the poster behind me, the prestige, right? You're given, Nolan's giving you all these clues throughout the whole movie. This is why good movies are worth a rewatch, right? Because you pick up things that are laid there by the creator that you don't get unless you know the ending, right? 
and it's not exactly the same in the prestige because you're seeing things that happened, but you don't get what is fully happening until the end. A good example, of, I'll just use one example. It's a good example is um, when uh, Christian Bale's character gets his finger shot off by Hugh Jackman during a, during the bullet trick. And then later you see you, you see Christian Bale with his wife and she unwraps his fingers and she says, oh, why is it like it's just as bad as the day it happened? Well, not only it's only till the end of the movie that you understand that scene. Now, that scene isn't necessarily a prefigurement of what the revelation is at the end, so it doesn't work perfectly, but it's the same idea. Right. You don't get that phrase and that question until the end of the movie. Then you rewatch the movie and you go, oh, I and you, you think, oh, yeah, but I know why. I know why you asked that question. You're right. You just don't know it. So, yeah, exactly. Good, good, good writers, good movies, good books do this all the time. Yep. Why would it be any other way? Yep. So, should we move into mm -hmm. the video? Yeah.